Welcome to the Business of Security podcast brought to you by TrustMap for security performance management. Your hosts today are Chad Beckman and Malcolm Harkins. Today, they talk with Drew Spaniel with ICIT. Now, let's get to it. Welcome to the Business of Security podcast. We're at another episode talking about IoT security. And I'm your host, Chad Beckman. Joining me as always is Malcolm Harkins. And today we have a special guest, Drew Spaniel. Drew, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Chad. I'm glad to be back. We spoke a couple of times now. We've had two episodes where we discussed IoT, cybersecurity, uh, pending regulations over in the EU, uh, as well as uh, some initiatives that have been going on in the U.S. as well on this topic of IoT security. And recently, there has been some new regulation come out uh, that actually was passed into law to deal with IoT cybersecurity. And Drew, we brought you on today to help educate us uh, based on uh, your affiliation with ICIT and all the research and work that you do in this space. Could you maybe help our listeners understand uh, what this law is and um, what we might be able to glean from it and what the future might hold? Absolutely. So HR 1668, the IoT Cybersecurity Improvement Act of 2020, was recently signed into law in early December. Um, it establishes a minimum security require standards for the Internet of Things devices owned and controlled by the federal government based on NIST guidance and cybersecurity best practices. The bill actually um, has been around for a little over a year and a half. Uh, I believe it was introduced in March of 2019, and Congress just kind of got back around to it before the end of the the session. Because any bill not introduced by January th- or not uh, signed into law by January 3rd of 2021 dies on the floor and has to be reintroduced. So this was sort of a last minute um, pass, and I, it was a uh, it was a bipartisan bill. It was bipartisan push to get it across the finish line, and fortunately, it was signed into law. Um, essentially, though, the, um, the bill ensures that the U.S. government purchases secure devices and closes existing vulnerabilities to protect uh, our nation's security and personal information that, that is um, stored, transmitted, or processed in IoT devices. Uh, direct, predominantly, it directs NIST, um, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, to develop standards and guidelines for the federal government on the appropriate use and management devices owned or controlled by agencies and any information systems connected uh, to those devices that are owned or controlled by an agency. This is also tasked with managing the cybersecurity requirements for contractors and subcontractors and developing um, best practices where needed for the private sector agencies and public-private partnerships. So this, this new law, uh, this bill that was recently signed into law earlier, this, earlier in December, uh, is essentially the first step to establish awareness and 
essentially put not to only uh, in order for NIST to create meaningful standards and measurements in place around IoT security, but also perhaps the industry as well. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I, w- I would say that's a, a pretty concise summary. Okay, so if if I'm a, an organization, uh, let's say that has a, a lot of IoT devices deployed, or perhaps I'm a manufacturer developing IoT-related devices, what are some things I might want to start thinking seriously about? You know, and and also thinking back, of course, to some of our previous conversations that we've had on the previous episodes of this podcast relative to what's going on in the EU and uh, similar work. Uh, those uh, entities are doing for securing the new IoT cybersecurity space. Uh, you know, as a as a producer or as a uh, managerial overview, you know, monitoring component of of my business, I have IoT. What um, what are some things I might want to consider today? So I'm going to address that in maybe two different um, ways for manufacturers of IoT devices. I think for a long time. IoT development has sort of been a um, a rush to market, right? Security, for the most part, I would say, has been left by the wayside, um, or or included as an after fa- after the fact add on. Whereas, especially with this bill, it's a pretty clear indicator that the the tides are turning, and security needs to be included throughout the ve- development life cycle of the device, and any device going into the market that doesn't have security included at every stage of development is going to hopefully, you know, not be included in agencies and, and hopefully over time, you know, not be purchased by consumers, right? Uh, right now, I would say with IoT especially, consumers, when they go to buy something, typically go for whatever's cheapest, right? They And half the time, they don't even know what IoT device is included in something else they're buying. Like if they're if they buy something off of Amazon, they go for what's cheapest, they don't look at the internals. The hope is that from the agencies and eventually in the public sector, over time people will start to care about these devices that are a sort of opening a window into their their lives and data, right? Now from from an agency side, the the bill prohibits uh, the heads of agencies from acquiring IoT devices that do not incorporate security according to guidelines and best practices that are going to be set by NIST. So it does kind of shut the gate a bit for the federal government on including vulnerable IoT devices on their networks. So it's a, it's a good first step, but I would say until time will tell what the, the long-term impacts across different market shares are going to be. So if I'm a manufacturer and I'm selling to consumers and maybe I have a public sector business where I'm selling to the U.S. government, then my business related to the selling of IoT devices to the U.S. government is certainly going to be impacted by this regulation because eventually these agencies, these other government agencies, acquiring and using these devices uh, in operations, um, they are going to require me, the manufacturer, to prove some point in the future that I'm meeting uh, certain standards and requirements that are going to be set by uh, NIST. Absolutely. Okay. And I, I would say for manufacturers, um, many will probably push back against this, this piece of legislation um, saying that, you know, it's, 
it makes it difficult for their business to operate or it's a, an impediment to, you know, I, I think the normal argument is it impedes innovation or something along those lines. I think that the smart businesses, uh, the smart manufacturers will probably key into the fact that this is more of a market differentiator for them. They can leverage this to sort of um, increase their business if they do it right. You know, because if, if they're, if they choose to go along with it, uh, increase the security of their products, you know, that's going to open up the agency and the federal government markets to them. Whereas, you know, some of their competitors that are selling cheap, vulnerable products who rely on that as a business model, you know, cutting the cost of the product by completely eliminating security, they're not going to be able to compete in these markets where, you know, ostentatiously, security is very much needed. If, if an organization steps up and, and begins to set more uh, standards, sort of set the example, um, I'm seeing this in other industries, financial, medical devices, and others, where these industry associations are essentially rallying around a cybersecurity standard for their industry. And what, you're, what I hear you say eventually here is that these in, the industry related to the IoT space needs to ultimately do the same thing because it's only going to help their business. It's not going to be a cost impediment or it's not going to be an innovation impediment uh, to what they're currently providing to the marketplace. Exactly. I would say where the difference is with this bill though is because this applies specifically to IOT, it's sort of both more specific and broader, right? Because numerous sectors uh, rely on IOT at this point. So the, when each sector is trying to push its own framework, that can sort of send mixed messaging to IoT manufacturers as to like what is actually um, required for them from, or expected from them for, from a security perspective. And I think also many frameworks sort of push the responsibility of security on, up the supply chain. I think that this bill does a very good job of sending a message to IoT manufacturers that they own the some of the 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 risk or some of the responsibility for securing these devices. So if we take an example of um, why it's important to have a, a standard around IoT security, let's talk about what's currently happening in the news. You know, just this week we learned about solar winds. And I don't think I have to explain to anybody listening to this podcast what that uh, news event was all about and the type of scrambling that is currently going on in the industry uh, regarding what's been learned. And you know, ultimately, based on the FireEye breach, we learned about the solar winds, uh, essentially injection of code into their code repository. Um, how does this relate? How does this example, or what lessons can we learn from from the solar winds uh, dilemma uh, that's uh, certainly impacting a lot of organizations adversely? What can we learn and apply this to the future of IoT security? Is there a corollary we can explore here and, and yeah. learn from in the future? Absolutely. So, interestingly enough, uh, and I, I think this will also come as no surprise to the listeners of this podcast. The lessons from solar winds are sort of um, tried and true in a sense, um, and I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. 
So the SolarWinds breach has sort of demonstrated that organizations are vulnerable through their supply chain and their vendors and their partners. And I, I think, you know, it is obviously big news right now because of how many organizations were affected by the SolarWinds breach. But this shouldn't be necessarily a new lesson for anyone. If we look back at the 2013-2014 Target breach, you know, Target was compromised through their HVAC vendor. And that was a billion dollar breach. I think it was the, the first billion dollar breach, if memory serves. So, you know, cybersecurity professionals have sort of been harping on this point of, you know, you need to make sure anything connected to your network or anyone connected to your network is secure. And that's your responsibility. But you also need to communicate with those partners what their security responsibilities are. And then you need to, to hold them to account for those. Right. If I'm letting you into my network or have access to my network, I need to know that you are securing your network. I think with with SolarWinds, you know, that has sort of hammered home uh, the lesson in the sense that even security companies have to be aware that they could pose a risk to, you know, networks. I don't know enough. Uh, I don't think anyone knows enough specifics about the incident just yet to say exactly where fault lies and things like that. But I think the, the lesson holds true regardless of the specifics, right? Every single organization should be taking precautions to monitor the access to the network to, to ensure that you know, vendors and those in their supply chain are taking security precautions and they should measure you know, what, what, how are they securing their systems? What are they doing? Because the more you know, the better you can respond to things, you know, et cetera. Chad, let me let me um, try and um, tease this out uh, in a slightly different way and maybe try and summarize it. You know, on, on the one hand, um, when I'm operating technology, right, whether it be a server, a PC, a laptop, an application, a website, uh, an IOT device, uh, software like SolarWinds on, on, on my server infrastructure, that's an information security risk. You know, the typical chief information security officer role who by and large reports up to the CIO. If I'm a creator of technology, which is the IOT bill, I then have a security development lifecycle of privacy by design to try and demonstrate that I've developed the technology in a way to minimize the potential for vulnerabilities. And I have a whole process around vulnerability disclosure and remediation to potential vulnerabilities that could come out later. Now, the interesting thing about this, and I've, I've long believed this from my time at Intel and all the tech industry experience I've had uh, in essence since I've been an adult, there's an inextricable link between product security and information security. And this is true for the SolarWinds issue. It's also true for IoT. Because in this case, the nation state actor added stuff to SolarWinds. So a breach of their information systems led to a product security issue, which affected the integrity of that SolarWinds Orion software that then was sold and spread out across thousands of organizations that then created an information security issue for them. So, and so when like, you think about this, there's, there's, 
these knock-on effects that if you don't do a good job of managing your network security and you're a creator or operator of technology, that can then create a product-related security issue in the case of IoT, of an IoT vendor. Let's just take um, any of the light bulb companies that are sticking IoT in their stuff or the HVAC vendors that are putting IoT in my, my heating controlling unit the oven and refrigerator folks that are putting IOT capabilities into my you know, home refrigerator and oven and all those things, if their networks are breached, the bad guy or gal, the actor, could then go manipulate the product that then is going out into buildings and homes and cars and wearables and all that stuff to then weaponize a different type of an attack vector. So the exposure, uh, what you're describing, Malcolm, becomes exponential very rapidly, uh, similar to the solar winds uh, situation that's unfolding today. Uh, exactly, and instead of being in you know thousands of organizations, we're talking about tens, if not hundreds, of millions of devices. Then that could be weaponized in a wide variety of ways to, for espionage, for ransomware and monetization, for um, shutting off, you know, and, and weaponizing, instead of going after the power grid, why not just shut off all the AC in the homes in the greater Phoenix area in a 120 degree heat wave? <laughs> or, or in the server farms. Um, and may, maybe to interject here, uh, ICIT, recently did a, a publication um, that is sort of tangential to this. I think it sort of hammers home the point that Malcolm is making. Uh, it's entitled, The Perfect Weapon Hidden in Plain Sight, a study on how the expressive Wi-Fi and BLE chips and modules can be weaponized for espionage, disruption, and destruction. And I'm, I'm not gonna go, you know, uh, listeners can go to our website and freely access the paper and read it if, they would, if they're interested. But the, the premise of the paper is that these IoT subcomponents, the Espressif uh, 8266 and ESP32 chips, were vulnerable in the sense that uh, an adversary could replace the, the firmware and in doing so weaponize whatever IoT device these chips were plugged into because the chips themselves are, we refer to them as the perfect weapon because they sort of have all of the components necessary to operate independently native to the chip so they you know other than the power source you know they have their own wi-fi and and other connections where they don't need to necessarily interact with the the code of whatever device they're embedded in 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 our our study um demonstrate that even just like a, about a hundred lines of malicious code could be used to completely uh overwhelm every Wi-Fi enabled device to, in, you know, in the immediate area. And these, these chips are small enough that they're being, they're in, you know, uh, Wi-Fi outlets, Wi-Fi light bulbs, light switches, uh, wearables, you know, HVAC systems, etc. They're everywhere. I believe uh, it's uh, somewhere around 400,000 devices of these specific devices enter the market per day. So if I'm an attacker, and I decide, and, and they can also be remotely activated. And, you know, we go into all that in the paper. I'm not going to go into the deep dive here. But if I'm an attacker, I just need to weaponize the light bulb in your office 
you know, or, or you're, if you're working from home in your home, and I can overwhelm all of your work devices that are connected to Wi-Fi and prevent you from doing your work for that day. And you would probably not even find, you know, where the compromise is if you didn't, if you even realized an attack was going on, right? Because the, the way the attack works, you'd probably check your router or, or something else. So I, I think, you know, that's just a home IoT kind of example. Obviously, with work from home, even agency folks are, you know, home IoT in a sense. But imagine if these devices were all over our agencies. And, you know, I don't know whether or not they are, right? Like if agencies can be completely shut down at will by malicious code and IoT devices, what kind of implication would that have for our critical infrastructure? And true to your point, I think in many cases that probably already exists, if, if not in, in the federal government, certainly in state and local government, right? There's all these green buildings. People walk in and the lights turn on, or when nobody's there for five minutes, they turn off. Well, that's an IoT device with a sensor, right? That, again, maybe it's just a simple thing that when people walk in, it doesn't turn on right? The air conditioning doesn't kick in because it's been instrumented with sensors to only do that when it senses people. But if you could trick it to go, no people are existing in the building, then again, how would people get light or heating or air conditioning to be able to work in that location? Right. And I would bet dollars to donuts that uh, anyone who you know, is acquiring and installing those kind of things, like, oh, we're going to make the building greener. Prior to legislation, um, like what the, the IoT bill that we're discussing, I would bet that uh, those, security was not necessarily a consideration, right? It was probably, oh, we need, you know, a, a smart light switch that has a, a motion detector. What's the cheapest thing we can acquire? Uh, to your point, Malcolm, you're saying, like, if the device could say, okay, there are people in the room maliciously, I'm going to say there aren't. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to turn on the AC because I don't detect people. What I'm saying is, you know, the, just the, the, the minor, the, again, about 100 lines of very simple code that we injected onto these chips sort of demonstrates a sort of a, a, a greater potential because the measurable function of the IoT device is unaffected, right? The, the, it behaves as normal until an attacker needs it to do something else. And that something else could be something noticeable, like turning off the AC in a server farm or, or something. But it also can just be, you know, hey, I'm a smart light switch. Your lights stay on. But while your lights are on, I'm going to send out, I'm going to, I'm going to flood your, your um, bandwidth with erroneous signals to brick every device nearby. Yep. Essentially an IoT botnet really is what you're describing to me anyway. Yeah, like the right. dinosaur a few years ago, right? Right. And, you know, I, I'm just using this as an example. I think what this bill does is it's a step in the right direction for sort of precluding the situations like what we found. And I'm sorry if that's a complicated sentence. But, you know, by the time we caught wind of this issue, you know, it was there were already 400,000 of these devices entering the market per day. and you know, so on and so forth. I think we don't know, you know, <laughs> if any of the devices that we looked at are incorporated into agency networks right now. I think had this bill been here two years ago, 
we would have a more, not necessarily a definitive answer, but you know, a better answer. We would be able to say, okay, maybe these devices are on the networks, but if they are, the devices that are there are secure. This, you know, listening to to all you and Malcolm talk about this um, as from someone that's not necessarily an expert in IoT, me, um, it seems almost overwhelming. But at the same time, I always contrast what's going on today with you know when I first entered this industry over twenty years ago, and and over twenty years ago we were talking about perimeter. It was all about the perimeter. You know, do you have a great firewall? And that was pretty much the extent of it. Firewall and a, you know, secure, harden your router configs. You know, that was the security discussion and maybe some access permissions here and there. Um, and so some of the same challenges exist when we think about IoT because it's a greenfield. It's a new space, you know, and, and I think it's, I want to say it's, you know, business always wants to get the product out the door fast to make money and, and, you know, collect on the innovation and the investment that they've made. But I think that's not just business. I think it's almost human nature to innovate, create great, good idea, get it in the hands of the people that want to leverage that good idea. But then suddenly we realize, you know, the repercussions of what we've designed or what we did not think about in advance and I think we explored analogy on a last podcast we did on this topic of IoT, which was the automobile safety, right? Uh, Seatbelts, you know, certainly weren't into do, introduced into vehicles for what the first, uh, I'm rounding here, but 50 years um, of the automobile uh, being used by consumers. And I think the window was closing now when we released new products as to the product is released or new new type of product is released to the time when we actually start getting serious about thinking of security and designing security into the process. And I feel like that's the, you know, hype cycle, if you will, I want to use some kind of visualization of the maturity of the space that we are in right now is we sort of launched IoT products into the market. Now we're starting to realize that there are some consequences if designed concepts and security controls are not properly considered in the design and deployment and manufacturing of these devices. What do you think of that hype cycle curve, Drew or Malcolm? Do you think that we're sort of in that, uh, in sort of the realization mode now of, yeah, we, we need to fix uh, what we've sort of already have exposed? I think we're still doing more talking than actually doing the measurements towards progress. And, I, and, and while I appreciate and um, love the progress with the IoT bill, it's necessary, but certainly not even close to being sufficient. And I think the, the IoT manufacturers are continuing with the same sloppiness the computing industry has been doing for decades. And the computing industry hasn't held, been held accountable to uh, minimizing vulnerabilities in its technologies. It's just said, okay, well, you got to patch the darn thing, right? Um, and so I, I think on the one hand, while I'm, I, I see progress, I unfortunately still am a little bit of a glass half empty. And I think um, the notion of minimal viable product has enabled minimal viable security. 
And until we really start performance managing ourselves and our organizations um, better around these risk issues, we're going to be magnifying our societal risk. I agree with Malcolm. Um, I would say that this bill does a pretty, it's a pretty decent first step towards securing IoT within the federal government and specifically the agency space. But in terms of the consumer market, it doesn't do practically anything other than maybe inch some manufacturers to start including security because they're already including it to to try to cater towards, you know, uh, government clients and things. Um, For the most part, consumer, as with, you know, the, I would say the computing industry and the software industry to an extent, um, consumers are still crash test dummies. You know, uh, it is, there's no real teeth to any regulation saying, you know, if a consumer gets this product and this product is catastrophically vulnerable, there are these repercussions or you need to, you know, include security by design in your product. That's just not in any of these bills with a focus on consumers. It's, uh, and I mean, when I, I use the term consumers very broadly, I want to point out that especially with IoT, everyone's working from home right now. So Chad, to your point about the, the perimeter, you know, where does the agency perimeter really lie right now, right? If, if and I mean, like, I know significant portions of the federal government invested in telework early on during the pandemic, and because of those investments, and because it allows them other benefits like uh, recruiting outside of the D.C. area, for instance, many agencies are actually considering doing, you know, extending the telework program or just adapting to permanent telework. But if that's the case, and I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad decision, but if that's the case, where does the agency perimeter lie? If, you know, a, a, an agency um, employee as a consumer purchases an IoT device and connects that onto their home network and that device is compromised, uh, and it can be, you know, it, and it's used as a, a stepping stone onto their work system or onto the agency network, or even if, like I, I said in our example, uh, it just prevents them from, it just does a, a localized DDoS around their work area and prevents them from doing their work for the day. You know, it, I think it's a little bit harder at the moment to to say <laughs> um, exactly where those boundaries lie. And, and I think there's definitely a need in this space for greater security protections for, again, broadly speaking, consumers. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get off my soapbox here, but I, I think um, it's really interesting to consider that every sector it has, has measurable regulation towards it, with the exception of maybe software and, and hardware and, and technology. Right. In, in any other sector, if a consumer was used in such a way, it wouldn't like uh, to, you know, your point with seatbelts, um, those are included as a, a mandatory requirement because of the risk presented to, to consumers. And it ultimately, you know, it benefits the company because it eschews liability, et cetera. Uh, and it's a market differentiator against companies that wouldn't want to include seatbelts and you know, so on and so forth. Consumers made the the move towards seatbelts because they, you know, the government mandated it, but also the consumers realized, hey, I'm moving in this metal box. 
at high speeds, my safety is a concern. Right now for, for the software and application and hardware technology space, I think we need a combination of a regulatory push and con, uh, an increase in consumer awareness where consumers will actually care about their own safety and security. Yeah, well said, Drew, very, very well summarized. And you know where I see the need because what you said earlier about the um, risk you know, that is certainly exposed out there, particularly with a work, work from home uh, individual, and they may buy an IoT device for their own use in their own home, and it's connected to the Wi-Fi, same Wi-Fi they're connecting to, you know, the corporate network. Um, that can put up, pose a, a security issue. So I think what uh, the message here is, because this can become daunting if you're listening to this, <laughs> thinking, oh my gosh, like, we're screwed as a society. How are we going to protect all this stuff? Yeah, it's not really the case. Uh, what the case is, it's just a matter of being aware, which we're, we're doing through this discussion today and exploring sort of the, uh, the exposure, right? And um, that's the first step into obviously being able to secure and understand where the risks are, where we need to apply those risks, and how do we continuously, continuously monitor those risks over time. Uh, so that could mean, you know, if you are a laptop user for your company and you are working 100% remote, that that um, no other devices, Bluetooth or otherwise, can be connected to that machine. You know, that, that could be a, a policy and a, a risk decision that your company might employ. And uh, it, it kind of goes back to the old adage of, you know, applying security in layers and understanding you know, what layers are uh, adequate and which ones are not, which is that uh, continuous uh, measurement uh, and a continuous improvement, which based on this bill and, and based on uh, where the industry is heading for IoT security, I believe we're in the right direction, which I think you both have alluded to here. So if we were to uh, kind of wrap this up and think about you know, what is the um, – kind of the next steps the industry might be looking at from an IoT cybersecurity standpoint over the next 12 months, let's say in 2021, uh, this is this being recorded, of course, in middle of December of 2020, at the end of 2020. Um, what do we anticipate occurring with IoT security uh, over the next year? Drew, why don't you kick us off? Sure. Sorry, for I keep doing this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to address this in maybe two different ways. Uh, I have my hopes and my expectation. I'll start with the expectation. Um, unless there's a big push um, from the incoming administration, the incoming legislators, et cetera, unless there's a big push within the next year, I'm not sure that we'll see anything necessarily change um, from, from a manufacturer's perspective. I mean, some, there's going to be some change because of this piece of legislation for the vendors who interact with agencies. And I, I think uh, to a greater extent, there'll be some vendors changing their practices to comply with things like CMMC that are coming out. But for, for the broad speaking consumer base, I'm not sure if there'll be any change. What I hope is that IoT um, manufacturers or you know, those in the IoT supply chain in general begin to incorporate security by design on their own sort of um, gumption to an extent, uh, because uh, you know, in the long run, it is a 
great move for their business. It's a market differentiator. Eventually, consumers will care about it when enough bad things happen. And if the manufacturer already is including security, they have a leg up in the game. Uh, you know, they they can set themselves apart. I mean, even now, I know that if I was just shopping for a cheap IoT device on Amazon or wherever, if I knew that one of those products was a dollar or two dollars more, but included vastly superior security, I would spend the extra dollar or two. And I, I think even the average consumer would probably make a similar decision. Uh, obviously, I don't have data to back that up, but I think the, the IoT market right now is operating on a rush to market and a, a lowest cost possible paradigm. And I think that needs to change. The, the last part, though, uh, that I, I, I would say is my hope is on the consumer side. Um, and this uh, I do I want to tie to, to um, your response, Chad. So security can be daunting, right? Um, it, especially when you start to think about things like cascading impacts or the security of every piece of technology in your home, you know, so on and so forth. It, it can be very daunting. But I think with even just a moderate amount of consideration, it kind of becomes second nature. Just like how, you know, when you're buying a new car, you think at least to an extent about like, the security, not necessarily the security across products, even though I, I know some people use that as a differentiator, but you at least think about like, does this car have seat belts? What do the airbags look like? Or when you're, you know, uh, more commonly or frequently, when you're buying food, you know, uh, you, you buy food from trusted sources, right? Like you're not just like, hey, where can I get food? Uh, you know, those, those steaks at you know, your brand name supermarket are probably a little more secure, a little more safe for you than the stakes that you would find at like a dollar store, which probably, you know, aren't what they're selling you. Um, so I, I, I get that I'm kind of trivializing these complex considerations, but I think that with a moderate amount of forethought, Many consumers, especially those in the security space, can sort of start to shift um, the 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 national outlook on IoT security sort of in in the right direction. Thank you, Drew. Malcolm, care to build off of uh, or share your thoughts, maybe counter to what Drew? Yeah, well, I you know I again I I look at this again from two angles. The the we are making some progress, but but again, I'll, I'll bring a finer point to it. You know, there's um, we shouldn't cling to mistakes just because we spent a lot of time making them, and and we've made a lot of mistakes in how we've approached this so far. And then the other aspect is there's two types of mistakes: ones you have to live with, and ones you can fix. And if you're in the situation where it's the ones you can fix, consider yourself lucky and go fix it. That's what our task is in front of us, is to go fix the mistakes that we already know we have. And, and I think if people do that, we will make progress. But if we don't and just live with what we've done to date and a level of incrementalism, we'll be seeing a few years from now the exponential risk we've created for ourselves. And it's, and it's up to us as, as leaders, it's up to the security team 
and their leaders, uh, you know, for us to really look at the social responsibility of this and, and take accountability to go address it. Well said. Well, I want to thank you both for taking time to talk about this very important topic and highlighting the new law. It's no longer a bill, but the new law uh, addressing this IoT security uh, need and, and raising the awareness. Um, of course, you know what the impacts are and what our future looks like as well. Uh, so, uh, as we you know explore this topic further for our listeners, uh, please stay tuned to the podcast. And once again, Drew Spaniel from ICIT, Malcolm Harkins from Cymatic. Appreciate the both of you joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Business of Security podcast brought to you by TrustMap. We want to hear from our listeners. If you have a topic you'd like to discuss in the podcast or would like to continue the conversation, please connect with us on Twitter at CyberSecPodcast or email us at businessofsecurity at trustsds.com. We want to extend a special thanks to today's guest, Drew Spaniel. Our hosts today were Chad Beckman, founder of TrustMap, and Malcolm Harkins, Chief Security and Trust Officer at Cymatic. You can connect with both Chad and Malcolm on LinkedIn and learn more about TrustMap at TrustMap.com. You can find out more about Malcolm and Cymatic at Cymatic.io. Our show was produced by Dan Rollins with Livewire Films. You can connect with Dan on LinkedIn and learn more about Livewire at LivewireFilms.com. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Business of Security podcast. And that's a wrap.